to the Samawar Network. Uh, we're excited to have you all here today. We've got uh, three of us here, three different time zones. Uh, we're all going to be sharing some, some stories today and hearing a little bit more about what's happening in Afghanistan right now. So that's uh, going to be the focus of today's conversation. So uh, we've entitled this call Motherland Reports. Uh, we, want the, we have the parliamentary elections and lots of other things happening in Afghanistan and we thought it was a really good opportunity for us to get together and hear about what's going on, hearing from somebody who's down there on the ground. Uh, for those of you that are new, uh, the Samoar Network is uh, where Afghan, the Afghan diaspora comes for online discussions. So we're a group of people who come together uh, and talk about issues facing our community. Uh, whether that be on iTunes, you can catch us on iTunes podcast, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, so we've, we're trying out our Facebook Live. So if there's any technical difficulties, please, uh, please bear with us and be patient. Uh, so I will briefly introduce myself. Uh, my name is Omar. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm calling in from Washington, D.C. right now. Medina, you want to introduce yourself? And then Ali, you can introduce yourself. All right, cool. Hi, guys. I'm calling from Los Angeles, California right now. Ali, John? Yes, yes. Uh, I'm Ali Latifi. Uh, I'm a journalist, and I'm calling in from Kabul. Awesome. Um, okay, so Ali, John, I was really curious um, before the call about how you ended up in Afghanistan, because I know that you weren't always there. So do you mind giving us, like, a little... Um, synopsis about how you ended up there and kind of your work there. So basically, we left when I was three or four years old, and then I basically grew up my entire life in California. Um, and then in 2011, I moved to Doha to work for Al Jazeera. And basically, due to visa issues, I got a chance to come to Kabul for the first time. And um, I basically, I lied to my parents, said I was going to Beirut. <laughs> I came here alone, didn't tell any of my family in Kabul, basically yeah. had my friends around. Um, and then, it, like, I would, like I was saying earlier, I, I think I think what affected me the most and what stayed with me is growing up, we always heard about a place where everyone looks like us and talks like us. And, you know, it seemed almost magical, like something that wouldn't exist. So being here, I think that's what sort of, kept me here. And then in 2013, um, I left Al Jazeera for a little bit and I moved to Kabul. Then I went back to Al Jazeera in Kabul. Um, then I was working with the LA Times for a while and now I'm working freelance. Um, so I've been here pretty much since 2013. That's awesome. Um, I definitely connect with you when you talk about kind of the, the romantic idea of Afghanistan. Um, and when I visited in March, I definitely felt that too. And it was such a trip seeing everyone who looks like me and and it it, it definitely felt like this missing piece um mm -hmm. so so that's awesome that you ended up there and you're working there now um as diaspora afghans i feel like we 
it's very difficult for us to connect with Afghanistan. And so like kind of in that pursuit, I know for me specifically talking from my personal experience, I always like to just kind of uh, be informed about what's going on. So we know right now um, the elections are going on. So uh, pretty much why do you think that we should care about the elections? That uh, Why should we care about what's going on in Afghanistan? Um. I can give you the I can give you the, the sarcastic answer, but I'll give you the serious. Answer. Yeah, we want to hear both. <laughs> yeah, start with the real sarcastic one because we know that's the real one. <laughs> the sarcastic answer is because you're Avalon and you should care about what happens in Afghanistan. But the serious answer is that um, you know I think one of the sort of when, when the U.S. started their invasion in 2001 one of the things that they said they would do is, quote-unquote, bring democracy here. Um, so it's important to see what something like that means. You know, is it possible to bring democracy somewhere and to expect it to grow to the— because it took the U.S. democracy 200-something years yeah. to reach to the point where they could elect a reality show host as their president, right? I um, Right? And so— we're say we're we're facing all sorts of issues right now, but it is still a growing democracy, and people are, for instance, so with this election, the Taliban from the beginning vowed that they would try and thwart this election at any cost, right? So so they attacked election campaigns, they uh, attacked election centers, and then in these last two days of voting, they they they've been staging attacks and and, and launching rockets and things like that. But despite all of that, we, just now the election commission said that four million people voted. Wow, um, that's a big deal, you know, because basically the the uh, eligible uh, voter rate is about eight million. So the fact that half of them vote, I mean, that's essentially in line with U.S. presidential elections. The fact that half of the eligible people, despite all of these issues, voted, it's something to take into consideration, um, mm -hmm. and it's. I think it's just important to know, I think, you know, because people always talk about democracy and what it takes to bring, quote unquote, bring it somewhere. We're learning the process. And like I said, like like the U.S. democracy, the French democracy, the, look at what happened in, in Britain with Brexit. Okay. All of these things show the complications of democracy. And yet somehow we're, we're the poster child for a bad democracy. Gotcha. gotcha. Ali, I see the you have the, mark, the blue mark on your finger. <laughs> I didn't catch that. Um, so what was the process like for you voting? Sure. So for me, it was, it was actually, I know this will, I'll expand on it in a minute. For me, it was actually really simple. Uh, I went to the place where I registered. Uh, so it was a masjid. They call it the Hirothi Masjid. Um, I went there and basically they changed the rules for voting where now where you register to, to vote is where you have to vote, which I think it's similar to that in the U.S., no? Like, where you vote is based on where you live, right? Mm. Um, so when I went into the center, uh, this was the first time that they included, so, like, like biometric verification. And essentially what that looked like was basically, like, you know those credit card scanners that they bring at the table to you to, to swipe? Yeah. It looked like that. No, it literally looked like that with, with a phone attached to it. And so what happens is you walk in, you go to one of the tables, and they find your name on the form. Then you go to the next table, and that's where the biometric thing is. So it looks like this iPhone, right? Okay. So they give you the biometric device. You put one fingerprint, then you put another. Then they turn it around, take your picture. 
And then they take a picture of your national ID with the voter sticker. And then the last thing you do is you dip your, your finger in the ink, and then you go and, and you vote. Um, so for me, it was really easy. It went very quickly. Um, but what the reason that there wasn't uh, there was still voting today on Sunday is because for a lot of people, it wasn't this simple. For a lot of people who went, um, either in some cases, the, the voting center was entirely closed. Uh, there weren't ballot papers. There weren't ballot boxes. Elections Commission staff didn't show up. Any number of, like, really egregious logistical mistakes, you know, uh, logistical problems took place. And so to, because of that, today, on Sunday—I mean, this, they've never had a two-day election ever. So today, on Sunday, two, 200, more than 250 centers were reopened across 22 provinces, including Kabul, um, so that people could vote. So yeah. that's how we got over a four million in the last two days. Okay, okay, I think that's awesome that um, they're accommodating that and they're recognizing that and kind of ensuring that uh, people are able to come out and vote. Um, so we wanted to ask, um, in terms of like how how like regionally. Uh-oh. Did, did in others? Did she cut off for you? Yeah. Okay. Medina, you cut out for a second, so you want to ask your question you again? Question. Okay. Yeah. Um, so atmosphere, what is that atmosphere like right now? Um, and then also, it, like, regionally, can you kind of describe if that does differ regionally? Um, so the atmosphere, like for instance, yesterday the atmosphere was very calm. There weren't a lot of people on the streets because they were, they were worried about the security situation. Like I was told by my relatives here, like, don't step out of the house. Obviously I disobeyed them. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot, a lot, a lot of other people were told the same thing. And a lot of people did try and keep up the streets because of that. And yet still, despite that, a lot of people did come out and vote. And we have to recognize that today things started to go back to normal a little bit, even though today Today was a holiday, too. That's the other thing that, that separates the elections here from, say, the elections in the U.S., is that voting day is always a holiday um, so, so that everyone has a chance to vote. It's always a day off. So that means that this week there were two days off um, for the election. Um, as far as, like, regionally, the biggest issue regionally is that, for instance, so um, in Kandor in the south, their election was delayed by a week because mm -hmm. their police chief killed in a Taliban attack uh, 48 hours before the elections occurred. And then in the east, in Ghazni, um, their elections have been delayed probably for till, till the presidential election in, in April, but that's not clear either because of security and logistical issue. Um, and then as far as, like, violence and attacks, like, in the north, in Kunduz, that there was a lot of attacks there. The main roads were, were shut down by the Taliban. There were a lot of rocket attacks. A lot of people didn't feel they could vote uh, because of security problems. So that's sort of, like, regionally what's been going on. Okay. So would you say, like, would you say it's safe to vote in Afghanistan? Could you make that claim, or is it, like, it just depends no. where you're at? No. It just depends. I mean, no, because like, listen, go, going and doing anything in Afghanistan is not safe. You know, it, mm. it's a matter of being at the wrong place at the wrong time. So the fact that people were willing to do that and not just in Kabul, 
not not just in the big cities. The fact that that, that people really went out and, and tried to do this, even if. 300 people turned out that that's still something important that people have to recognize because even leaving your house, you know, you're taking a risk on any given day. Um, and so going out and voting at a time when the Taliban said specifically that they would target um, the election. No, it doesn't make it safe. Right. And were people like excited? How, what was the atmosphere like for these elections? Like, are people excited? And because I don't know how this hap- I don't even know how often this happens. Like, how often do these elections happen? So, so. so technically, technically, there should be a parliamentary election every five years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this election was actually delayed by three and a half years wow. because of uh, security issues and because the government couldn't agree on uh, electoral reform policies. Uh, and so this this election was sort of rushed. They announced the election. Uh, within five months, they announced the election and they held the election. Um, and so what happens is the day that that campaigning starts, so in this case, it was September 28th. Wait, so five months? You wake up. No, no, it's, it's the campaign period for uh, the parliamentary election mm-hmm. is only about 20 days. Yeah. But from the announcement of, of the date of the election to when the election took place, it's about five months. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's such a, I'm just saying that's like such a short period of time. Well, well, it's even shorter when you consider the campaign time yeah. because the campaign period will be about 20 days. Wow. So what that, mean, yeah, what that means is on September 28th, when you woke up and you walked into any city in this country, and in the last week I've been to four different provinces, everywhere you go, there are billboards, there are signs, there are posters of candidates. Um, actually, one of my friends, uh, Habib Totakhil, he, he used to write for the Wall Street Journal. He said something really funny on that day. He's like, everywhere there's these overly Photoshop pictures uh-huh. of parliamentary candidate. And it's true. It really is. Um, and, you know, it's funny because it's like the cities are inundated. Like I was in Kabul. I was in Gardez. I was in Khos, the capital of Khos province. I was in Logar province. Everywhere there were um you know, these banners and these signs. And it's like, how many people actually know who these people are? Mm-hmm. And how, you know, it's so incredible to see that. You're just seeing random faces of men and women everywhere uh, trying to get your attention. Right, right, got it. So talking about those overly Photoshopped candidates, um, <laughs> what are some of the names that, that we should be paying attention to? Uh, in terms of In terms of the candidates? Yes. Um, or I don't like, know if, there, if there's that stick out to you, um, maybe in terms <laughs> of like, there. well, I'll tell you some trends. I'll tell you some trends. So okay. like for one, um, there were, um, a lot of young people running this time. A lot, lot. I'm talking like, so, so, so the cutoff age is 25. You have to be at least 25. So I met candidates who are 26 years old who are running. Wow. Right. 26, 28, 30, 30, even 35, maybe pushing it a little for young, but still, um, there, there, there were so many young candidates voting, uh, 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 running. There were also, um, a lot of former journalists, you know, many that I know, uh, at least three or four journalists running from different provinces, uh, that were, you know, really, I mean, it was interesting to see them make that shift to go from journalism to wanting to be in politics. Um, and, you know, in many ways, they have a built-in audience. 
Um, so that was a trend that we saw. There were a lot of women running, but there usually are. Um, and then there were negative trends. You know, there, there were like children of warlords running. There were, there were uh, you know, big-time businessmen running or, or their children running. Um, a friend of mine who works in the government, you know, he was like, um, Ali, a lot of a lot of businessmen and their children are running because they want to protect their assets, you know, uh, especially against these sorts of measures that the government is taking against fraud and, and corruption. Um, so, so that was another trend that we saw. Uh, we also saw, I mean, something fun like, you know, new kinds of advertising. Like we saw everyone's Facebook was inundated with ads. Instagram was inundated with ads. Um, one candidate I loved was that when he announced his a young guy, when he announced his his uh, bid for parliament, his wife retweeted him and said, "The love of my life is running." Uh, <laughs> and, and then he responded by saying, uh, "I have two great role models for me: my my wife and my mother." Wow. Um, and that just that 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 tweet that that his wife uh, tweeted went pretty much viral in, in Afghanistan because it was so unprecedented in a lot of ways, and it was just it was really sweet, you know. Mm. And Ghazal brought up a question on on the Facebook about why do you think so many people are running? Like, why are so many young people running? Um, you said so this is like a trend. A I I asked a lot of them. And they said that they wanted to, first of all, they were like, we're the majority of the country now, right? Um, depending on the figure, it's between like 40 and like 60, 65% of the country, depending on what your cutoff for youth is, is young people. Um, also, you know, now that a lot, like I said, like somewhere as young as 26, so they just reached the age where they could register as candidates, right? Is there a and certain age the one thing that, people, that you have to have to register? 25. Yeah, at least 25. Okay. To run. So uh, they they said that basically the, the current parliament is not a representative of the people. They used phrases like a mafia network uh, full of corruption, uh, only out for themselves, you know, out to make money, um, trying to divide people through um, like racist words and things like that or, or through divisive politics. Um, so what all of them had in common was they all said, we want to basically, we want to keep our door open. We want people to be able to come to us even after we win. And we want to move away from the sort of like ethnicization of politics. We want to be the representative for everyone. So like, um, one of the candidates was running from Kandar and he's like, I'm not only representing the people of Kandar, I'm representing the people of, of Bamiyan and of Badakhshan and of Tahar and of Kabul and of Nigarar and all these, he's like, I don't just want to be seen. Uh, obviously, I'm, I'm I'm running for for I want to represent the people of Kandahar, but I also want to represent all of Afghanistan. And everyone I spoke to made this comment. They're like, we want to get away from linguistic and regional and ethnic politics. And they were all uh, different ethnicities, all of them. Okay, gotcha. Kind of going off of that. Um, I know, speaking for myself, before I went to Afghanistan, I always kind of had this idea that uh, corruption was in every facet of the government, of in politics, of in elections. And when I went there, it was really so really good people in Afghanistan that are trying their best and really um, are pushing to okay. to remove okay. that, that corruption. I think, I look, like, corruption is, is a complicated issue. Right. Because there's definitely corruption. I, right. I've seen it in my 
experiences. Yeah. Um, I think one one of the problems is that I think corruption starts from the top, okay. right? And you have to hold the, the the highest level leaders accountable for it first, because if they're stealing money and they're stealing people's rights, obviously the guard, the policeman at the passport office, who isn't getting paid enough, is going to take a bribe. As much as it makes you angry when you have to get a passport, obviously they're going to do that. Or when you need an ID or whatever it is you need to do. Um, and, and, you know, like you have to, in some ways, you know, you're like, okay, these people are just trying to make a living. Yeah. You know, again, we're looking at the lowest level. And I think the problem is it's always the lower levels that get punished. It's always the lower levels that get caught out, uh, caught out in these kinds of things. Like, um, a few years ago, the president, uh, Ashraf Ghani, said something like, we need uh, the ulama to like issue a fatwa against corruption. And I was like, no, what do they have to do with it? Like, they're just as much victims of it as anyone else. You need to clean up your own government. You know, the people around you, you need to hold them, including yourself and everyone around you, you need to hold them accountable. And you need to make the change that, that you want to see. Because once they realize that, that the highest up can't do it, then the policeman isn't going to do it. The guard isn't going to do it. You know, you know, the person sitting in the office isn't going to do it. Yeah, I hear you. Um, a question that just kind of came up for me right now is thinking about um, how corruption is kind of ingrained. And, and just like how you said, like, it's, it's not black and white. And um, a lot of mm-hmm. folks are just trying to survive what like what do you kind of see in terms of the willingness to remove that corruption and almost like how likely is it like like what are you feeling about that whole issue in Afghanistan which is a super complicated question but um, I mean, just kind of I think it's like I said earlier it it comes down to starting at the top so we have very powerful people including our first vice president, our current first vice president, our former second vice president, Ustad Sayyaf, who literally have been called out for not paying their electricity bill. Wow. These people are millionaires. And, like, right now it's almost winter. Kabul will be without power for hours at a time in the winter. And these men who are millionaires who built massive mansions, massive compounds, aren't doing their fair... They're, 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 they're getting every, all of the benefits of the government, but they're not doing something as simple as paying their electricity bill. So until someone can go up to Ustad Sayyaf and Parman or, or to Dostom or, or to any of these other people and say, pay your bill, nothing's going to change. Yeah. And, and that thing is, is like they can make, you know, the average Javon pay $100, $200, $300 for their electricity bill because they know they'll never get it out of these men. And the average person doesn't have a choice. They need power. Yeah. So I hope that yeah. it, now, can the parliament be effective in putting those people in check? Because so my, one of my questions is like, how much power does the parliament actually have? The power, parliament has a lot of power. It's very similar to um, the, the the Congress in, in the U.S. Right? It has a lot. They approve uh, ministers, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they 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 not only do they approve ministers, but they can call in a minister at any time. And, and call for a vote of confidence. So at any time, if they're upset, if they feel like a minister isn't doing his or her job, they can vote them out. They can vote them in and they can vote them out. So this is a major issue. So if you have an incompetent minister, 
look to the parliament, you know, um, because at the end of the day, and th this is what these young candidates were bringing up. Uh, like this government, the National Unity Government, has a phenomenal turnaround rate in, in terms of ministerial positions. Um, so again, th this leads to questions both about how the central government is choosing people and how the legislature is responding to that. Because you've seen cases where people vote someone in and then they vote them out mm -hmm. in, in a vote of confidence. Um, they also can, you know, they, they, they also approve laws. You know, they vote on laws. Um, so they have a lot of power. And at the same time, they are supposed to be the representative of the people to Kabul, right, to, to the government in Kabul. So if, again, so if someone in Kandal or someone in Bamiyan has an issue, they should technically be able to come to their parliamentarian in Kabul and say, my area doesn't have a bridge, or this guy beat me up and, like, took my money and he's a thug. You know, they, they should be the ones that answer these things and raise it to the government in Kabul. Okay. Okay, gotcha. Um, in terms of, like, the U.S. military involvement, what, is that, what does that kind of look like? How does that tie into the parliamentary elections? Um, it doesn't necessarily tie, tie into the parliament. I mean, like, for instance, the, the, if the parliament wants, they yeah. can, you know, they come out and question the bilateral security agreement with the United States, okay. which was the agreement that was signed basically the day after the national unity government came into being. Uh, in 2014, which allows for um, thousands of U.S. soldiers to stay in the country. Um, and actually, one of the things about that is that they can't be prosecuted here, those soldiers. So if they commit any crime, they get, they get prosecuted in the U.S. Right. Um, and so there are a lot of people that are now, with the security situation getting worse, there's a lot of parliamentarians. Now, some of this is politically motivated, but there are a lot of parliamentarians that are asking questions about this. Mm -hmm. um, so, so in terms of like the U.S. military involvement, they can sort of get involved in it, um, but again, that's something that's much more high level. A lot of those discussions are made between Kabul and Washington directly. Okay. Um, so is there anything, I guess, what are some other, I, before we move on maybe to some other things, uh, what are, is there anything else you feel like that we need to know about the elections in particular? Um, that you think is just really important to know for people who are outside of the country and outside of Afghanistan, um, kind of good about? Um, I mean, I, I think it's like an election anywhere else. You know, campaigning is very similar everywhere you go in the world. It requires a lot of money. Uh, it requires a lot of promises that you probably won't live up to, to be quite honest. <laughs> Sounds um, familiar. You know, exactly. Um, it. Uh, requires a lot of trust by the people. Um, and I, I think that that's one of the reasons, for like people who didn't vote, that's one of the reasons. They were like, look, why am I going to vote another corrupt person in? Why am I going to risk my life to, to, to make sure that that's another thief you know, gets this powerful position? But again, despite all of that, four million people did turn out. Um, so that's something to remember. That's something to keep in mind. Yeah, yeah. I just kind of want to say, like, as you're speaking about that, and, and when we see these photos coming out of Afghanistan of people voting, it really takes my breath away. Um, it It's really incredible just to see how resilient folks can be um, and how despite, you know, I'm kind of thinking of, like, a lot of folks in America and how when we feel disparaged and we feel like our, our government is not being accountable, how easy it is for us not to vote. And we're not walking out um, and feeling like 
our bodies are at risk, right? It's, it's safe here. Um, and so I think about Afghanistan and it just really takes my breath away that like folks are so resilient and are going out and voting. And that's really beautiful to know as someone in diaspora for me, I think. Actually, I, so when, when I went to go vote, there were a lot of um, policemen ahead of me in line. Uh-huh. And um, I remember at first they were happy because they thought like the ink wasn't a thing this time. And then when we were waiting in line, no, I'll tell you why in a second. And then when we were waiting in line, they saw that, you know, people's fingers were being inked. And this and this uh, policeman, um, he said in, in Pashto, he was like, from what I could understand, he said, um, when I get home, I have to wash my hand because I have to go to Kunduz after this, which is a province in the north. And the road leads to Kunduz. You know, there's a lot of Taliban along the way. And the Taliban would stop you when who knows what they would do to you if they saw that you had voted. Um, so the fact that he was facing that risk. Um, he still came out, you know, and, and he, him and all the other policemen in that area came out and, and not only did they register, but they also voted. Um, so again, that's one of those things that, that it made me really happy, you know, yeah. um, just all yeah. the problems. Yeah. Um, uh, I had a couple of questions come up for me, actually. Um, do you feel like are the results of the elections accurate? Like, can people who vote trust that their vote is going to be counted fairly and properly? So this is the other problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> you forgot to tell us about this one. <laughs> is that um, all of the last three major elections have been plagued by, by accusations of fraud and corruption. Um, and I think they're, they're, they're warranted. I think the biggest issue with, with, with the result of, of this election is the fact that it's going on for two days is going to raise a lot of questions for people. Now, I've spoken to a lot of candidates who personally tell me they're upset but won't say it to the media. And I think that's because, let's be honest, a lot of people are waiting to see what the result is. If it's in their favor, they'll keep quiet. Um, if they find out that they were unsuccessful, you better believe they're going to be like, how was it that there was two days of voting? What happened overnight in those voting centers, right? Um, you know, they're, they're going to they're use this uh, to their advantage. Um, so sadly, corruption is an issue. Fraud is an issue. That's something that the biometric devices were supposed to um, help bring down. Um, but again, once the results come in, we'll see not only what the results say, but how react to it okay gotcha gotcha um okay so kind of moving on from talking about the elections um i know that you mentioned before about the the recent loss of i think he's a police chief in kandor right Mm -hmm. uh general and so um, I know specifically, like my parents have been talking about it a lot, and it was a really big deal. What is there kind of to know about these recent killings, and how how does that impact um, just the atmosphere and kind of the 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 feeling of still wanting to go out and vote, um, or just or just whatever your thoughts are about that? So, if we're going to talk about Rozik specifically. He was uh, the police chief of Kandor province uh, starting in 2011, and he had worked his way up in the Kandor police um, over the years. Now, what he's credited with is making the city of Kandor safe. 
Um, and it's true. Anyone who's been there recently will tell you just how safe it is, how controlled it is, um, to the point where a lot of people um, have to keep their, their, their IDs with them at all times because he wanted to make sure that Pakistanis didn't get in and pretend to be Avant. Wow. Um, so he was very, very... And then the other thing that a lot of people love about him is he was very vocally anti-Pakistan. He gave uh, an interview for Vice News where he said, as long as I live, Punjab will be my enemy. Um, <laughs> and I got chills. <laughs> right? And and he did an interview for like NATO, a NATO video where he said like, the war is not here. It's, it's on the other side of the line. It's in Pakistan. Uh, that's He said this in a NATO video. So, so this is what really, and he was also very anti-Taliban. This is this this is really what made people like him: the fact that he was able to secure the city, the fact that he was so vehemently anti-Pakistan, the fact that he was anti-Talib. But he also had a dark side. He okay. was accused of um, disappearances of people, of torture, of um, killings of people, um, and a lot of it was the excuse of. Uh, you know, let's pretend he doesn't like my friend. What he would say is like, that's a Talib, that's why I killed him. Oh. Um, so so this anti-Talib uh, rhetoric went both ways. So he was one of those people, he was a very complicated figure, uh, but, but very much uh, a result of the war on terror, the so-called war on terror. Because, you know, the U.S. and Canada, who were both in Qandar, loved him because he brought order to the city. Uh, but I can tell you, as much as people loved him, every every person I knew in Kandor was scared of this man. Mm. You know, uh, I, I remember uh, years ago I was doing um, like investigative journalism training uh, for, for reporters from different provinces. And one of them from Kandor said, how do we uh, do investigations on people that could get us killed? Right. I said, you know what? You have to realize what's important enough and what isn't. And unfortunately, sometimes in this country, you do have to self-censor to keep yourself alive. Yeah. Um, and he was definitely a figure like that. So he had a very uh, positive, very bright side, and he also had a very negative dark side. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a very complicated legacy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, interesting. Back to sorry, the, sorry. Fact, uh -huh. the fact that he was killed... In Khandar, yeah. the governor's office, um, while meeting with the top U.S. general in Afghanistan, that scared a lot of people for two reasons. One, if Rozik could get killed in Khandar, then anyone could get killed anywhere, right? Two days before the election. And, um, oh, right. And, like, for me personally, um, I have mixed feelings about the man, but... For me personally, what ran through my mind is what's going to happen to Kandar. Right. You know, what's going to happen to the security and stability that's been there for the last seven years? Can whoever comes in his place, you know, reestablish that for good yeah. or bad? Some, you know, that's more than anything. For a lot of people, it's a very emotional loss because to them, he was a hero. For me, more than that, it was about what's going to happen to the people of Kandar. and yeah. what's going to happen to that because yeah. it's a great problem, you know, um, if you've ever been, it's a great place. Right, right, right. And I know as a diaspora Afghan and, and Omar, um, I'm, I, I wonder if you feel the same. I know, like, we kind of heard, like, Kandar is, like, wild, wild west, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, you don't go to Kandar. Like, that's what we've heard yeah. as diaspora. 
folks. So it's so to hear that, you know, General Rozik brought that much security, but also was not, again, this black and white figure, like there's so many grays. Um, It also just kind of makes me think like, it's so interesting because I just kind of want to go off what we, what we have structured here. It's interesting to me, like whenever I, as a diaspora Afghan, whenever I talk to folks who are not Afghan, um, they, they almost place this expectation that, um, everything is going to be black and white and, and, and they hold these people accountable. They want to hold these people accountable in that way. And these are folks who are not Afghan. And I think about our own American government, right. And how here, nothing is black and white either. And, for us to have that expectation from a country that has been in 40 years of war, um, it's so refreshing and so nice to hear a lot of positive things coming from you, someone who's there on the ground, um, because it's, it's kind of like, it's, there's a lot of resilience and, and, and it's going to take a long time. And for us to have all these expectations, I think as diaspora Afghans and as non-Afghans, um, we need to be patient. And and that's just kind of what's going through my mind right now. It goes back to what I said in the beginning. It took the United States more than 200 years to elect a reality star as their president. Right. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Yeah, right? no, I know. Two- I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> so if it took them that long to get to that point, how long for us with, you know, we, we're, we're stuck between probably two of the worst neighbors on earth. Right. Iran, Pakistan, and then Russia not far, China not far, and then the EU and the U.S.'s own own vision for this country. The fact that things are moving, that has to be taken into account. And, you know, this, this is something that the government has repeatedly been saying, is that this is an imposed war. This is not a civil war. This is not a, a war that we chose or we brought on. It's an imposed war. Um, and so it's going to have its complications. And part of these complications, look, like someone like Razik, if you aren't a fan of his human rights record, well, you know who bolstered him? The Canadians in the U.S. and NATO, mm. just like they did with so many other police chiefs and, and warlords and commanders and militias mm. uh, throughout the country. Um, so, again, you know, these are issues that, that, that have roots in many different directions. Right. Ali, you, you referred me to a, a TRT article from, uh, from Turkey on, on, on the general and how the right. strong men, yeah, strong men breed strong resistance. So like mm-hmm. when we kind of prop these individuals up, the resistance mm-hmm. grows, the backlash gets stronger. So, um, that was something that was really eye-opening for me to kind of, also just like realize that and, and I think you brought up the really great points about how these individuals are supported by the US government but it is complicated like there's no black and white to this mm-hmm. but uh, but that's exactly what, what, what we have to keep in mind is that none of this exists in a vacuum and these people don't become that powerful without outside support without internal support and outside support um, so, so when we're looking at how people got to be this level, to, to this level, we have to look at it in a global context. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, something you've been reporting on is, uh, like, the, and so like, and when we talk about the military and the war, you've talked about how, uh, Eric Prince, right? He's American dude. 
He's coming yeah. into Afghanistan and trying to privatize the military. Like, if you could just like quickly talk about that. So basically, he's claiming that he can bring down the cost of the war by by this massive—I I don't remember the exact percentage, but by this massive percentage—by essentially doing what he did in Iraq, and uh, which obviously was a massive failure in Afghanistan. And and the crazy thing, what the thing that set people off was that he came to Kabul. He appeared on on the largest private ca- broadcaster in the country and essentially said that within six months he could change the face of this war. Um, and just like we were talking about Razik and these and these militias around the country, the problem with trying to privatize. Oh, I mean, forget the problem of trying to privatize a war in general. You're trying to privatize a war here is that how are you going to make sure you aren't enabling these same sorts of people who will commit. Because this is the thing with these kinds of abuses, because with a company like what Eric Prince is is proposing, they aren't accountable to the same degree as, as the U.S. military would be. And they definitely aren't accountable to the same degree that the Afghan military would be. So how are they really going to act? And how is it that 40 nations, 40 nations, including NATO, could not figure out this war, but this man whose business is war, who makes money off of war, on a personal level, I mean, obviously countries make money, including the United States, make money off of wars. But he, he's a private business. You know, yeah. he, he gets a lot of uh, leeway legally. How is it that he um, he can claim to, to, to try and solve this war? And what scared people was that he was meeting with powerful figures here and really trying to sell them on privatizing the war. The fact that he was actually campaigning for it. And, and coming here and appearing on the largest television network in the country the second time in, in one year, um, you know, that, that worried a lot of people. And eventually he was made persona non grata here. Right, right. Um, talking about the war and talking about the imposed war, um, how are people reacting to it, um, the, reacting to the anniversary of the war? Or is it being discussed um, it just passed right? a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's something that if people get asked about it, and you know, sometimes people talk about what it was like when when the war had, when this war, uh, the 2001 invasion, had started. Um, but it's not. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people remembered it when, you know, they were being asked by Western. I remembered it when I was being asked by Western media outlets and a lot of other people remembered it uh, that way. It's not necessarily something people mark on their calendars. Um, So I think more than anything, what it is, is this feeling of a things aren't getting better. In fact, they're probably getting worse. Um, And 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 this feeling of like people are age, right? So like I said, I was like three or four years old when I left. Um, and I remember um, the first time my mother came back was in 2013. Um, I wrote a story about it. And I remember the last thing she said to me before she left, she was like, Ali, you were born in this country in war. You left it in war. You came back in war and you'll probably leave it again in war. And that's true of me, of you, of Omar, and of probably everyone else watching this right now. And of all of these young kids who are running for parliament, right? Like, like if you're 26 years old, that means you were born during the Civil War. Yeah. If, if, if you're 30, that's probably about the Soviet occupation time. Um, and so that, that's a massive issue. You know, that, like, even, even, even as part of the diaspora, you know, I think 
we, I mean, uh, maybe Omar can back me up on this, but I used to joke, like, our childhood stories were about our grandfather being tortured in, in Polachaki. You know? Yeah. Uh, aunts used to, like, regale us with these, like, horrific stories uh, about what it was like. Um, you know, my sister, she was, um, I don't know, like, 16, 17 when, when we left, and she said, I don't remember. She's like, our parents always talk about the good old days, but I don't remember a good day from there. Yeah. Because she essentially grew up with the Soviet occupation mm-hmm. um, and the start of communism. Um, and then and then being a refugee in Peshawar, then going to Pakistan and, and, you know, whatever came with that. And then coming to the U.S. and being told you stink and you look different and this and that, you know, running, jumping into high school in the U.S., uh, when when no when That's, when you've just yeah. come out of a country at war and you're facing all that racism, yeah. Um, and on top of that, you know, you remember everything that happened to get you there. Yeah. Um, and I think that this is true of the majority of no matter where we are in the world. Uh, this this is true of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, like like we're we're all affected by this war. As much as we want to pretend like we're not, we're, we're all affected by these last 40 years, um, whether we like it or not. Yeah, absolutely. I, I saw a quote somewhere, so, uh, and I'm forgetting who. It was an American author who wrote it, and they said something about, like, when you go to Afghanistan, every um, the every every everything has a story of war. Even Even a loaf of bread that you pick up has a story of war. Um, and so, you know, just as you were speaking, like, I think, I think that also brought me back to why we should be caring about these elections as diaspora Afghan, you know, even though we're not in the country, um, we, war is pretty much ingrained in, in the history of our families and how we got here. You're paying this war, remember that. Right, right, right. Pay right. taxes in the United States, maybe. <laughs> uh, so, so if you pay taxes in the United States, you're paying for this war. Yeah. Um, and, and the truth is that the average person in the United States doesn't even remember that this war is going on. Yeah. Because why? Because like, what was the initial discussion I had with Omar about this series was that it was about what you didn't hear in the news, mm-hmm. right? And like, like for me, these last two days, I was shocked that CNN and well, I guess I shouldn't name them, but that's okay. <laughs> that the international shade. <laughs> That, that, that these international outlets were calling me about a parliamentary election and the fact that they called me on the second day. Mm. You know, so when I was in, in, in California for Omar's wedding in August, at that time, the province of Ghazni essentially fell to the Taliban for several days. There was a bombing in the west of Kabul on um, basically like the equivalent of an SAT prep uh, center, the uh, center for the college entrance exam that killed dozens of people, young people, young students. Do you know what was on the news in the U.S.? The Omarosa tapes. Right? Every, because you know, like, U.S. media loves panel shows. Every panel was, like, different frames of different people, and they were all discussing Omarosa. One, you know, this hour, next hour. It was just different people talking about the same, you know, reality, another reality star turned politician. Um... And so, so, so this is why it's so important to know, because there are people dying, um, and I won't name the media outlet this time. <laughs> um, there was a, 
um, when when Rozik died, there there was a media outlet. They put out a video, and they said because the top U.S. commander was with him, like oh, the top U.S. commander narrowly escaped an assassination plot, and two people who were near him got killed, and they're the types of people who would be near him. But he was so brave because he was in that room, and he didn't get killed. And then you know because it's the U.S. media, and oh by the way, Donald Trump hasn't gone to a war zone yet. You know, there was no mention of Rozik's name. Not only is it that, you know, he's a person and, and his name should be should be mentioned, but in terms of, of, of politics and security in Afghanistan, he wasn't just any person. Right. He was one of the most influential, important, loved and hated figures in this country. Yeah. And, and for him to be killed really did shock people. Shock me. And... I mean, we're talking about like the war and, and I think one of the questions that always comes up for, especially f for those in the diaspora is like, what do people in Afghanistan think? And like your, a lot of your role is to collect that information, but you put like, well, you know, like they you put 10 Afghans in a room and you get 20, <laughs> 30, 20, 30 different opinions and like. How do you how do you gauge that, or how do you how do you like get those stories of what people are actually thinking in Afghanistan in your role? Um, how do you get to that? How do you speak for those th those voices? Um, I don't know if I speak for those voices. I think everyone has their own voice. Um, I hope if anything, I just amplify those voices and I and I bring it out to um, an international audience. Um, I don't. I mean, I don't know specific. I don't think I do anything special or different. Um, one thing I do try and do is, um, I really don't like talking to politicians or interviewing politicians because we know what a politician will say, right? That that's not special. That's not unique. I can tell you with my eyes closed what they would say. I would rather talk to the guy who drives the rickshaw in Jalalabad, right? Or the guy who makes the glass at Herat, or the woman who's going to university in Pakya, or 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 the man who's a doctor in Bamiyan. Um, that's what I would rather hear from, because they're the ones that are actually... I mean, I don't mean this to sound trite and, like, oh, precious, but I, I mean, because I, I, I really... So going back to the election, like, one, one thing that kept people from voting was that the way that the, the registration works now is... So the national ID should have put it out. It's basically like a piece of paper, like a piece of office paper. Um, and, you know, it has the writing and the picture, whatever. And then on the back, what they've done is they've put the, uh, the registration sticker on the back. And why that's important to remember is that most people in Afghanistan, the only document they travel with is their taskara, their national ID. Right. So to get to a lot of places, you pass through potential Taliban territory. If the Taliban were to see you with a voter registration sticker on the back of your of your tatskara, you don't know what would happen to you, right? And I remember uh, when I went to register, I, I asked one of the guys working at the registration center, I'm like, don't people realize how dangerous this is? And he said, Ali, the people who are making, or he didn't say my name, but whatever, the, the, people, the people who are making this decision don't go by road, they go by airplane. Yeah. How do they know what it would be like? Yeah, And we have, and this is a point that I want to make clear is that it's not just going to, it's not just going to Wadak or any other province. It's going to the districts of Kabul. 
There are districts in Kabul where if you're caught with that tazkira 40 minutes outside the city, 30 minutes outside the city, if you're caught, you, you could be at risk. So again, this is why I say it's so, you know, because, because these political types will try and sell this a million different ways. And I get why they did it for, for in terms of like security and, and fraud and corruption. But think about the average person that has to go to Wadalak, that has to go to Bamiyan and, and pass through Wadalak or Parwan. The average person has to drive to Kandor that can't afford a $150 trip ticket, you know? Um, so again, this is sort of what I hope I can get across. Right. Right. Um, this was a question that I kind of thought about uh, this morning. As diaspora Afghans, is there anything that we can do? I mean, and I know. Right. Okay. Um, you know, keep keep up with the news. Talk to people here. Come see what it's like. You may like it. You may hate it. Right. But uh, tried. You know, I don't think I don't think you're obligated to like being here. Right. A lot of people don't. It's fine. It's not for everybody. Um, but some people really do like it. Um, I mean, I think that's all. And, and, and if you are informed and if you have come here, then maybe you can be one of those people that influences things. Like when I lived in D.C., there were so many events I would go to on Avalon where there was literally not one Avalon on the panel. Mm. Not one, you know, or, you know, how many times do we see, um, you know, like, 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 a, like, like a, an old white man or an old white woman sitting in D.C. or New York talking about what's going on in Afghanistan and you, no one asked them when was the last time they were in this country. So yeah. if we become informed and we become more involved, we don't need those, 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 that old white man or that old white woman. Omar and Madina can go. Yeah. Yeah. Ali, um, I have a. So, so you're saying it's 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 important to get informed and like, what do you what do you think we need to do with that information though? What needs to happen? Um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I think uh, if you can um, look like like I think like what you you guys are doing is really great, right? Because. You're engaging young Afghana who are involved in all aspects of society, right? They're, who have influence in so many different places, who have uh, financial resources, who have networks. Um, so hopefully, uh, maybe some kind of a group can be created where where, where people can 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 lobby and and can try and um, uh, what's it called and 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 like really present the issue. Um, because I think people here can only do so much. Um, and now as, as people who benefit from the good and the bad of this country, I think we have an obligation to try and do what we can in a positive way, again, without sounding like precious or trite or whatever, um, but in an informed way. Um, Ali, I know your your battery is about to die, and so you have to run out. I just want to quickly ask, like, what are one or two, a few things that just make you hopeful about Afghanistan and about the future of Afghanistan? Like, just give me a few things for you that stand out as like, these are the things that really inspire me and make me hopeful about about what's what's going to happen in the future. I mean, I've met a lot of like really great people throughout this country. Um, people who 
don't have electricity in their house, who, who keep a car battery to keep a single light bulb on, but, but will feed you the Palau in their house in the mountains of, of Samangon, you know, uh, or like where I was walking through like the snow covered hills in Pine Shade and, and they could see that we were getting tired and they came and they brought us water. Um, or, you know, like the little boys in, in Daruta who were trying to teach me cricket and I failed miserably. <laughs> um, and, and the fact that, you know, I saw so many of these really cool young people that I admire saying that they want to run for parliament because because they feel like it's a cor- they were willing to say that it's a corrupt system. You know, they weren't towing the line. Um, the fact that four million people, despite all of this, did come out and vote. Um you know, the fact that there is an innovation here, that there, that there are new ideas, that there's so much business and so much enterprise. Um, I think these things, if they're really honed in on and harnessed, should make you hopeful. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out and, and sharing all of this with us. Um, on a personal level, it touched me very deeply. There's so many times where I wanted to cry, and right now I'm totally getting teary-eyed. Um, and that's because, and I'll tell you why, that's because before this conversation, all I knew about the elections is that I had some family members running. <laughs> that was mm-hmm. all I knew. And I thought it was cool. Um, but now I think I really learned a lot about why this is important for us as diaspora Afghans. And um, it's making me want to feel accountable in terms of me going out to vote. You know, our voting, our, our, our uh, elections are coming up and a lot of us choose not to vote. And um, I'm starting to feel like, you know, a little crappy that I was thinking about not voting just because I felt annoyed. You know, but to know that my, uh, my my the folks back home are doing that despite you know everything that's happening, that's really um, it's touching me on a deep level. So thank you so much for for sharing that with us. Yeah, thank you, Ali. Appreciate the insight and everything you brought. And um, you know, I, Medina, I think said it all. Uh, in, <laughs> in terms of just like how impactful it is, and uh, again, like. That the fact that that you, I really, it really honed in on like how much of an of a of an act that is of like just that that action of voting and like what that represents. Like it represents so much for people to just engage and participate in that. Um, so like it's it's just like it makes me even like when I read the stories and see the photographs, it makes me even more, you know, just just impressed and just you know. Um, admiring the people there and the country there so so i appreciate you kind of sharing us those insights and hopefully we'll we'll get a chance to to chat more and thank you for everyone that's that's joined us on facebook live and um please feel free to continue engaging in those comments (laughs) um and 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 continue to share and ali hopefully you can make yourself available for people who have questions on there as well um but thank you all for joining us on our network what's that Am I allowed to answer them now? Yeah, go for it. You can answer them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then, um, but yeah, thank you again for, for, for joining us. Please catch our, our, our podcast on iTunes. Catch our videos on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram. You'll find us all those places. So uh, we'll, we'll transfer this over to a podcast soon. But thank you all again for joining. And, and thank you, Ali, for, for taking the time for us. You're welcome. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye, everyone. Peace. Love this.